where we bring you progressive voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. Remember, folks, if you value what we do, we need your support. Visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website. Better yet, make a monthly pledge, whatever amount you want. 25 supporters are doing that, and we need to increase that number by 30 to the end, by the end of the year. So help us out there. And thanks also to the local businesses who support this program, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. You can order groceries online, and Gateway also offers catering and floral services. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. And thanks also to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines' East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. All right, uh, Charles Goldman with me today, folks, uh, co-hosting with me as we cover a lot of ground. Uh, later in the program, we're going to be talking about Afghanistan, arguably the U.S.'s biggest ever foreign policy fiasco. We're also going to discuss the new census data and what that might say about the future of politics in the U.S. We'll also talk about how corporate interests seem to be funding the big lie about the 2020 election. But we're going to kick it off by talking about how Americans' divisions are really more about economics than race. Charles, welcome to the program. Oh, it's good to be here, Ed. Now, in some circles, you can't say that without getting in trouble. Well, I'm, I think I'm more interested in, in the idea of how, how, how do we frame the divisions in a way that people who want to see liberal and progressive uh, goals achieved— um, can convince other people. The whether there's validity to the issue of systemic racism, which I believe there well, is, it certainly is, which there no is. Doubt. It people have other identities other than race. First of all, sure. what we call race is skin color. It's not race. Um, it skin color is not a a predictor of any sort of genetic ability or. You know, the, the, the spread of people's abilities within these races that we make up is pretty much the same. You could, you know, there's a bell curve of achievement. Yeah. The issues that, that color create in the United States are opportunity, the chance to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, is that there's, although not percentage-wise, as many people who are in poverty in the United States uh, among whites, certainly in the absolute number of, of people in poverty in this country, it's predominantly white people who are in poverty. Um, and they are the biggest users of what we could call classically welfare. Um, and um, and also stamps. and also tend to be supporting Republican candidates, uh, maybe not across the board, but especially that demographic. Uh, Trump did very well with that group. Well, you see, I think that's, that's, that's true and not true. That's kind of a canard. In point of fact, at least in 2016, Trump did extremely well among educated white women. So the Unless in fact so in he won, he, he beat Hillary among educated white women, you know, suburban white women. So, but, 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 but I mean, there was, was a more stark distinction between the support level uh, among the... The, the white working class, the white, the, the, 
the, the, the folks, um, again, I know where you're going with this, and I think that's where I want to go, too, is that um, a lot, there are elements of the Democratic Party that have made this conversation about race. And well, no, where I'm it, going with this it, is not that it isn't an argu- a discussion of race, but there are, there are commonalities among people who are, see themselves as progressives and people who are, who are among the white working class. And if the problem is that, whether we want to admit it or not, the cultural elites that, that are progressive talk a great, no. they talk a great game about they believe in redistribution, they believe in higher taxes. Can we, can we make a distinction, first of all, between progressive and liberal? To me, there's a huge difference. And the, the elite class you're talking about tend to be the classic liberal. Uh, government will intervene and save you. Well, progressives are a minority in this country. And if well, the liberals are not allied with the progressives, then there's no chance of winning either agenda. I, no, I disagree, actually. I, I, th- I think, the, again, if, if you will accept my definition that, being a, that a progressive is about trying to reform the system, it's not necessarily taking, uh, taking tax money and using it to lift people up, although that's often needed, obviously. It's more about identifying the systemic problems in the system that allow some types of individuals and more importantly some big corporations to dominate the economic it, sphere it, it's not it's not really about corporations ed it's the point of fact is the system we have set up favors the very people who you're saying are going to make progressive change in the system people who are what we would consider on the left side of the argument talk about a lot of those things but when the push comes to shove they don't follow through their Boom, actions classic, say just that, the opposite that, that, that to me is a classic liberal <laughs> no, and, and, and it's no the, progressives. It's the, progressives are people who are never going to get anything done because nah, they are no, absolutists. No, no, no. I totally disagree. They are looking for absolutes. No, no, no. They're looking for systemic reform. You, you can't, you can't, you, you, can't system, you can't keep a system. Who are going. the progressives? Who are the progressives? Uh, Bernie Sanders is a good example, although he again leans toward the socialist spectrum of the, you know, of the progressive universe. You don't, you don't have to be a socialist to be a progressive. I mean, there, 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 there no, are I agree, plenty of market-oriented type. Philosophy, you know, people who who buy that philosophy economically, who who can fit the definition of progressive, they want to change the system. And who would who would benefit the most from changing the system? Um, the ninety uh, percent of America, and that's I would say most. I mean, most. I think most Trump supporters want to change the system, and so that's. That's yeah, what I think. And, and what change do they want? They want economic change. They want they, they want economic equality. They want integrity, and and they also want structural reform within government, especially at the federal level. But they want to see a system that no longer leaves out big chunks of the population, and that again, you can argue, and I would agree that there are big chunks of of of, of, of racial minorities in America that are left out of the equation, but it's the working class more than anything across the demographic spectrum that are left high and dry. Well, but they don't identify themselves as working class. They're, first of all, they're allowed to believe there's something different from that because they're giving other people to blame for their economic problems, which is immigrants and people of color. And that's happened throughout history. Right. Yeah. Secondly, um, they are not, they are not in, in line with progressives in terms of the cultural things that progressives have a tendency to push on them. Right, and that's and that's why. And I, they are especially not in line with the idea that college is the only way to success in this country, which is exactly what the elites on the left have set up. Yeah, and I, I don't believe it is either. Well, that's now, great. now less than ever, you know, given the fact that it is so cost you know cost prohibitive. I mean, if you, if you end up paying for college for most of your life, what's the point? <laughs> well, it's not just a matter of paying for college. It's the question of why is why is the ability 
to buff a CV in high school and get yourself into a more, quote, elite school, which is always defined as Ivy League schools, um, or some of the big state universities, why is that a criteria for success later on? How, so, do you really want a society of a bunch of people graduated from Ivy League schools? <laughs> no. But back to, back, back to, back to the, uh, the original point, too, is the, I mean, Democrats have, um, not all, but within the Democratic Party, there's a large group that have made the conversation uh, about change based on race. And again, again, no argument. Racial injustice needs to be addressed. But that's not the argument. That's not the conversation that's going to bring home the people who supported Trump. I mean, again, a, an increasing percentage of Latinos, a smaller percentage of Asian voters, hardly any black Americans, um, but a large percentage of working white, you know, working class white Americans. And that's the biggest demographic that I think the Democratic Party used to represent and has lost and is going to continue to lose if it prioritizes identity politics. It's got to get back to economics. Right. And the identity politics that they should be prioritizing are just what you're saying, which is not to be talking about you know, defund the police and things that are easily twisted to, you know, uh, put people off who you need to recruit. There's not enough people who are left-leaning and leftist in this country to win elections. Why do you think Joe Biden won? I mean, I know, I know, you, I, I, I know that you're, Wait, you now, may believe the big did lie. Did he win? Right. Did he win? Right. 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 Yeah. Why, <laughs> yeah, why do you did. believe Joe Biden won? Well, because uh, Trump had demonstrated just how— um, off the rails he could be. And there were enough Republicans and independent voters in particular who were tired of seeing the, the, um, the, the, the facade of, 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 uh, of, of, of governing with integrity. And, and just they finally had enough of it. Well, I would say that, that he won because he looks the most like the saint of the Democratic Party. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He looks well, like that's a stretch. He looks like he's not an Ivy League graduate. He wasn't in a wheelchair. He's not an Ivy League graduate. <laughs> he's talking about a program uh, that was much more akin to the New Deal. Well, Let's yeah, face it. Okay, everything yeah, about yeah, what the Republicans yeah, have done yeah, since Reagan onward is a reaction to it, the New Deal. That's it's a deconstruction of the New Deal state. If that's true, then Bernie Sanders would have won the primary and the election. Well, he didn't though. No, I know. What does that tell you? Well, because Sanders was seen. <laughs> Sanders was seen as not. He may well have believed in the New Deal type of state, but he does not represent a lot of the cultural issues that people who are willing to vote for Biden I guess what it tells you is that I'm I'm legitimate in disagreeing with your premise that uh, people voted for Biden because he reminds them most of FDR. (laughs) I just don't see that. He looks— Don't see that. They are sick of people who don't look like them, who talk about how— you know, the way to, to success is through college. They're sick of, of Ivy Leaguers. As much as I, you know, I admire President Obama, he, in Despite fact— Despite the fact that he, that he was an Ivy Leaguer, right? No, what I'm saying is he <laughs> represented—some of, the, some of the, the aversion to Obama, yes, plenty of it was about him being black. But a lot of it was because he represents exactly what, what the people who live in rural areas of this country, who live in smaller cities— don't like about the Democratic Party. And then they go talking about that mm. there, are people's, there are people's party— and Amazon fights the union yeah, down in Georgia. Of course they do. Hey, so I, to me, uh, the, the, way to, the best way to sum up what this next election should be about and the, what the past one really was about is to go back to 1992, James Carville advising Bill Clinton. You remember? It's about the economy, stupid. It, it, that's way too simplistic. It's not the economy. It is what does the work, what has the working class gotten out of well, okay. 50, I agree. 50 years of, dem, of Republicans' idea that the only policies there should be are low taxes, 
for wealthier people. Because the Democrats and de- have not, and de- less regulation. The Democrats have not offered the alternative. He, I mean, one reason Trump won, I'll give you one reason he won, NAFTA. Bill Clinton put NAFTA into place. Trump, well, he didn't exactly undo it, but he, uh, he, he, um, he changed it enough to satisfy mm-hmm. an element of the electorate that wanted that. Right. And we've got to go to a break. <laughs> well, Charles, I think we mostly agree on that. I was hoping we'd have a bigger fight. Maybe that's coming. I'm not sure we do. I really think that that you you know I believe that I, I believe in progressive values, but they are they they sound great when they're uh, you know in, in a class at at Yale Law School, but they don't work when you try to actualize. Oh, I agree them. with that. Dang, we agree. Okay, well, hey, I'm gonna come. I'm gonna take a short break here. When we come back, we're gonna talk about the big lie. That's the big lie about the election and how it's being funded. It's not just well. We'll tell you in a minute when we come back on the forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Hey folks, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. And remember, what you hear on this program, you won't hear on the corporate-owned stations. You can support the alternative to the right-wing shock jocks by becoming a monthly sponsor. You can email to me at Ed Fallon, sorry, Ed at FallonForum.com. Email me there and I'll give you details. Hey, thanks to our local business partners, including Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Clipsham knows we must build better health for people and the planet, and the services he provides are committed to that. Architecture by Synthesis. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. Wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. You can contact David Drake, familypsychiatry.com. All right, again, welcome back to the program. So um, I want to share something with you from the New Yorker magazine, an article August 2nd of this year, an article written by Jane Mayer. Uh, Ralph Neas has been involved in voting rights battles since the 1980s when, as a Republican, he served as the executive director of the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights. He has overseen a study of the Arizona audit for the Nonpartisan Century Foundation, and he told me that though the audit is a farce, it may nonetheless have extraordinary consequences. He said, and I quote, the Maricopa County audit exposes exactly what the big lie is all about. If they come up with an analysis that discredits the 2020 election results in Arizona, it will be replicated in other states, furthering more chaos. That will enable new legislation 
and millions of Americans could be disenfranchised, helping Donald Trump to be elected again in 2024. That's the bottom line. Maricopa County is the prism through which to view everything. It's not so much about 2020. It's about 2022 and 2024. This is a coordinated national effort to distort not just what happened in 2020, but to regain the House of Representatives and the presidency. Uh, that's Jane Mayer in The New Yorker referencing uh, Ralph Neas, who, again, a Republican uh, and the director of the Na Leadership Conference on Civil Rights. Uh, Charles, on target or off base? What do you, what's your take on his assessment of the um, reason we see this so-called audit in Arizona? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, the reason I, I kind of brought that article to you is I think that this is a piece of journalism that everybody in the United States should be reading. And right. uh, I know we're going to sort of, it's more than we can talk about in one segment. And so we're going to probably bring this up again maybe in a couple of weeks. So, Well, in a couple of weeks, we'll probably know what the, uh, well, quote, audit discovered. Well, the audit it is actually never meant to end. The audit is simply two things. It's a grift on the part of others yeah. uh, following the Trump, the, uh, the Trump way of doing business, you know. And it also is a grift for the president, the ex-president, because he also gets money out of all. Yeah, of and it's also going to be happening in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Well, Georgia, it may or may maybe, not. It may or may maybe. not. But, I, but they're, the fact that they're already making noise there right. is getting attention. Well, that's right, and, and that's all this the is, base. That's all this is. That's all this is meant to do. And I and I think before we sort of get into the nuts and bolts of of where the money is coming from, because that's what Jane Mayer's article is about. Right, right. It'd be interesting just to talk a little bit about the foundation that is, in fact, this relatively unknown foundation that is, in fact, behind almost every group that goes by other names. And interestingly, as maybe we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, Cleta Mitchell, who was on that call with the president, uh, the, you know, President Trump to the uh, secretary of state of Georgia, the uh, lawyer who, yeah, who, who lost her uh, partnership at a Milwaukee firm after they found out <laughs> that she was involved. She she is on almost the board of every one of these big lie entities. So what's interesting is, and this is where the mayor article is just fascinating. Um, so the the big lie uh, drive is 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 mostly been funded by a relatively small foundation, nonpartisan. Oh, excuse me, tax exempt, of course. Well, as there's, they all, there's also some Arizona tax dollars involved. A very small amount. It was yeah. like six hundred thousand dollars. I mean, but most of the money that's paying off cyber ninjas. Um, well. <laughs> is coming from a foundation called the Bradley Foundation. And, and, and an entity that has no experience conducting an audit, whose director is tightly connected to uh, President Trump and has, been, has previously been uh, buying into the notion that the election was stolen. Right. But I mean, that, and that, that's been widely known. And, and everybody, including the Republican uh, Board of Supervisors in Maricopa County, is fed up with them. And they're sick of their you know, claims about that they don't have all the information, that they... You know, they were looking for folds on the mail-in ballots to prove they actually were mailed in. They, of course, were doing their infamous bamboo survey, <laughs> right, you know, to prove that they weren't they were from sent Asia. from China. Somewhere and, in Asia. You know, then, of course, we have uh, Mike, the My Pillow guy, who's out there claiming that he has the stream of data showing that the Chinese actually altered the, vault, the votes from China and every computer Aye, scientist. Dang, I thought it was Vladimir it. Putin we were worried about. No, this is oh. the Chinese. In fact, the reason that I found this fascinating was that what came up at the beginning of, of, of Mayer's article, just to show that, you know, if history doesn't repeat itself, it certainly rhymes. Um, the family <laughs> the family that um, uh, founded this foundation, the father was a 
founding member of the John Birch Society. Right. Okay. So there are probably many and, and, of the and, listeners who have no idea what the John Birch Society is. Well, it has nothing is. to do with birch trees. Right. It has to do with, uh, well, basically a very hard right take on government and the economy. Uh, yeah, we'll leave it at that. Well, yeah, no, I actually, I think, <laughs> I think it's worth going through a little bit of the history of the John Birch Society to understand that there's two things going on here. You, In 30 you to have, 60 seconds or less. We don't <laughs> want to bore people. Well, no, no, actually, I think it's actually quite fascinating, <laughs> which is, it was founded by a guy in 1958 by the name of Robert Welch. Uh, he, his dad was a wealthy candy manufacturer who left the business to he and his brother. Welch, of course, was the, was the one who was the ne'er-do-well because actually his, he worked for his brother after mm. that. He didn't, they didn't both run this company. I would never work for my brother. But Well, the point being that Welch, of course, is a classic example of the, the oligarchic elites that mm-hmm. are on the Republican and conservative side, which is they don't earn their money, they inherit it from somebody else's work. Yeah, and then they, and and then they, they talk about their yeah, American yeah, individualism. Right, 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 and yeah. Yeah, Exactly. So anyway, but I, what, what, what about Mayer's contention and Nahas's contention that this, beyond the fact that this is raising some money for uh, a handful of people, um, that it's also about prepping the ground for 2022, 2024, um, you know, creating enough discord, enough doubt, enough um, dissension that you, you can't, you, we won't again be able to have a fair election that people regard as, as, um, as acceptable. And also in the process, a whole bunch of people are going to be disenfranchised. I mean, we saw it here in Iowa with Secretary of State Paul Pate purging the voter rolls taking, I can't remember the number, tens of thousands of people off the rolls because they didn't vote in the last election. That doesn't make any sense at all. You have all sorts of reasons why you might miss an election. So, yeah, I, I think, I mean, I, I don't even think they need this to pull that kind of shenanigans off. But well, that's the contention. Do you think they're right in saying that this is a pre- oh, preparation this is, this for 2022? Is, this is a preparation 24? for multiple things. Okay. Um, it's a preparation, first of all, for allowing the passage of... Um, a lot of the laws. And, you know, while everyone's concentrated on, on some of the issues of voter ID and some of the other things, what's hidden in a lot of these laws, since they all pretty much were written by ALEC, um, <laughs> that's the American an, another, another nonprofit that's tax <laughs> exempt. Um, what's hidden in these laws is the fact that it would allow the state legislatures to basically throw out the results of the uh, voting and substitute their own judgment for what should have been the result. And that is in several of the laws. Hmm. Now, that is actually, believe it or not, um, may well be substantiated by a, a little remembered part of the decision of Bush v. Gore in which uh, Rehnquist, was it Rehnquist? I can't remember. Yeah, I think it was Rehnquist and Clarence Thomas, of course, wrote into that decision that According to the Constitution, the state legislatures do have the right mm. to determine the uh, results of voting. You know, everybody thinks this country was that there's a right to vote in this country. Uh, isn't it odd that we talk so much about that you know, revered document, the Bill of Rights in the Constitution? Not once is the right to vote, a uh, popular vote, ever mentioned. Well, perhaps that would be a good amendment. Perhaps it would be. <laughs> but the point is, is that you are going to see a number of things. One, you're going to see... Uh, the interference by state legislatures, no matter what the results are, you're going to see yelling and screaming that it's all a fraud. Um, you're talking about the 2022 and 2024 elections, and, and probably further into the future than that, because this is going to be yeah. uh, this is what we are going to live with. But it, it's another failing of the system. And so let, 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 one thing I would say is, 
this country wasn't founded on the idea of democracy. This country was founded on the idea of control uh, of everything about the document is to control the masses. It wasn't the French Revolution. It was the American Revolution. It's a little bit different. Okay. Now, that's good because obviously the French Revolution, people got beheaded in the streets for an reign of terror went on for you know, well, years. With great entertainment, though. But, you know. I'm um, kidding. Yeah, just, just, just as, as, you know, in, in the United States history, as we'll talk about in a minute, it took 80, Civil War 80 years later, right, to fix a lot of the things mm, that yeah. the Revere document left in place. Well, let me ask you, there's something else from the sure. article you, you mentioned that I quoted from earlier, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chad Campbell, he's a, he's a Democratic um, operative in Arizona, a former minority leader in the uh, House of Representatives there. And he said, and I want to know if you think this is going too far, he said, quote, Arizona is in the midst of a nonviolent overthrow in some way. It's subtle and not in people's face because it's not happening with weapons, but it's still a complete overthrow of democracy. Going too far or is that accurate? No, I think that's where, exactly where we're headed. We are, we, we are going to be ruled by minority whim. And that's going to be enforced by courts with minority opinions. That is a great segue to our next conversation. We're going to talk about the census data. It's in. It's interesting. It says lots of things about the future. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Groovy Goods is your Des Moines one-stop hippie shop. Located near Drake University, we are more than just a store. Groovy Goods is about community. We're a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. You will be greeted by friendly staff, the smell of incense, the vibration of healing stones and crystals, the vibrant colors of clothing and tapestries, and an extensive herbal apothecary and metaphysical products. At Groovy Goods, everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Check us out online, groovy-goods.com, or stop in at the corner of 23rd and University in Des Moines. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Ed Fallon and my co-host Charles Goldman. Hey, you can support this alternative to the right-wing shock jocks by becoming a monthly sponsor. Think about it, folks, and check out the Fallon Forum website or contact me at ed at fallonforum.com. And thanks to the businesses and nonprofits that help make this program possible. Thanks to Groovy Goods. That's Des Moines' one-stop hippie shop where everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Groovy Goods is a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. Learn more at groovy-goods.com or stop in at 23rd University in Des Moines. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, including Bold Iowa, building rural-urban coalitions to address climate change. You can learn more at boldiowa.com. And also thanks to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. Get information about classes and workshops at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, so the census data is in. This is big news. It means that we will soon see legislatures across the country wrangling over 
how best to use that data to create new congressional districts, new House and Senate legislative districts. Uh, there's, all, there's a lot of concern this is going to mean a whole new round of gerrymandering. And yeah, we should expect that to happen. There could be more, uh, more things coming out of this, though, that might not settle quite as well for the Republican majorities in those states that have Republican legislatures. Charles, what's your take on the census data? Um, it could have been worse. <laughs> that, you know, some of the traditionally blue states did not lose as many uh, seats as was thought they would. Um, it, it's certainly fascinating to see the, the population trends in the United States um, to some degree. What's fascinating? Well, I mean, to some degree, if it weren't for immigration and uh, first and second generation people in the United States, we'd start looking like Japan a society which is getting increasingly old, having decreasing birth rates, a negative growth rate. And even with that, we are having a negative growth rate at this point in terms of population. And why is that a bad thing? Um, because societies that are extraordinarily elderly in percentage uh, don't have the resources to take care of those elderly to the degree we as badly as we do it here. Right. And that, uh, that, that's, that's, that's not the overriding concern you hear from the, uh, the gurus of the endless growth paradigm. They, they want to see more and more people on the planet all the time because it means more and more consumption, more and more profits. Uh, and so to me, when I see well, that there's the population... Well, there's a lot of things. It, it, meets, it makes labor cheaper. If, sure, there's that know, too, yeah. But there are ways of getting around that but, because you can use automation and robotics to yeah. do that. So, but I mean, that, again, this is a sidebar conversation. Yeah. We'll have to have some other time about the, the question of what is the sustainable level of population that, that Earth can manage. But the, um, yeah, in the U.S., interesting stuff happening. The first time that, uh, that the uh, white population in America has dropped, now that might be in part because people were finally able to indicate... They're not uh, sure what they are. Well, indicate they said biracial. Other. They said other. You know? Well, they said other, and a lot of those people were not... In fact, that's a big question about even the people who identified within mm -hmm. ethnicities, whether they were actually... Uh, true. We, we truly consider them that ethnicity. Mm. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, it, it's absolutely true. It shows that we are becoming a... Uh, you know, we're, we're close to becoming a white minority... Yeah. Uh, well, you know, nation. As far as gerrymandering is concerned, <laughs> the census really doesn't make a difference. All it does is set up the numbers to be screwed around with. Right. You know, um, I, in Iowa, it's probably not all that relevant because it, uh, there's a lot of restrictions on what you can do. You can't draw districts where, you know, you've got like well, one city on, on the west side of Iowa. Legislatures in the legislature in Iowa cannot gerrymander because uh, the law prevents them from... Uh, from from changing what a nonpartisan agency presents, you can't you can't amend that. You can amend it the third time around, but the question no, would be no. It's it's well, it, you know, the third iteration if the if you if the third iteration can be amended, but well, it ends up going to the courts. It would so end up going to the courts if it actually violated yes, the Iowa why, law. It's, it's a great you know, folks. If you're listening and you got a map in front of you, Google Iowa congressional districts, and you'll see four basic basically four blocks. Google Pennsylvania on the Republican side, or Maryland on the Democratic side, or Texas for that matter, and you'll see some incredible amoeba-like shapes that the only logical explanation for the existence of those congressional districts is trying to exclude people from political power. And that's going to happen again. But Charles, right. I think what's interesting is the, um, the cities, cities in, in this, in, in, according to the census, cities are growing. 
Mm-hmm. Rural areas are continuing to shrink. I think that's a problem on a couple of levels, but again, that's another conversation. Politically, that bodes well for the, if I could just reduce it to a two-party analysis, the Democratic Party. Um, I'm not sure it bodes well for America in the long run to see rural America vacated and cities getting un, un, you know, unwieldy. But I think in the, uh, you know, in the over the course of the next decade, again, much of which will be decided with these uh, with these uh, redistricting committees, it, it could be it, it's going to it's going to there will have to be a shrinking minority within you know within the electorate that controls things. I mean, we already have we already have a minority that controls things. Uh-huh. We we see that in states that have uh, you know maybe may fairly balanced. Democratic Republican voters, uh, you know, voter right, but we know that but, the the result of what's allowed yeah. by gerrymandering is that you have states like North Carolina, where yeah. the electorate is almost sixty percent Democrat, but right. the House of Representatives delegation is almost sixty five percent Republican, and that's only and that's by what, virtue. It's only by virtue of gerrymandering, yeah. and the, and the problem is, and it gets back to this whole notion of the plenary rights of the state. It yeah. goes back to the whole. My whole argument that seeing the Constitution as a democratic document is a simplification and in many ways a mistake. Mm. And that the leaving of the rights in the state legislature's hands, this is what you get. And 23 delegations are completely controlled. 23 states are completely controlled at every level by Republicans. Republicans. Yeah. And and again, some of those states, like Iowa, do not allow for gerrymandering. Only Uh, a couple. Only well, a, only a couple. I mean, yeah, I know Wisconsin is looking at adopting that, but I don't think they will this time. No. They've got the opportunity to. Uh, to Iowa's fairly unique in that. It's yeah, pretty and, much and three, I, you know, it's four and there squares. Is a po- some people are concerned <laughs> that the Republican legislature here will try to change that to allow them to gerrymander the state. I mean, I, I, I question: Do they really need to? I mean, there are, no. they've already got three out of four congressional districts. Right. You know, um, but again, in fairness, two of those, well, three of them, I guess, are fairly balanced in terms of registration. But, you know, if Republicans here did change the law to allow them to gerrymander, they could probably assure that though that three of those four seats would be solid Republican for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, I, I think uh, what's happening with this um, with the census data is that uh, the um the, the country is becoming more diverse, more urban. Uh, there is less political power in rural America. Uh, again, with the existence of the U.S. Senate, that doesn't matter. They'll still have their two senators, no matter how uh, devoid of population a rural area might be. Mm-hmm. And I have mixed feelings about that too. But the um, you know the bottom line is it's going to be a, a harder. It's going to be a bigger challenge for Republican legislatures to gerrymander. It's going to it's going to take. Um, I mean, again, look at some of these districts. They are incredibly uh, distorted. They're going to have to jump through even more distortions to create districts, given the new demographics. (laughs) They'll do it. With AI, it's not that hard. With AI, it's not that hard. No, no, I I know. And that's why we get back to what I said the first time, which is you're not going to win this battle. Right, the courts aren't going to stop it. We already know that. They won't stop it for you know. They they barely will stop it if they consider it race. Uh, driven as they did in North Carolina, made, they made them redraw the North Carolina districts. Right, but that was a, that was the exception to the gerrymandering right. cases. You know the the problem the problem is, and I agree with you that the depopulation of the rural areas is um, is problematic. But I, I'd also argue that a lot of the problem in the rural area in the rural areas of the United States are that they live with this mythology that 
they are American individualists. And, and that's where you see this whole argument like for the mass mandate. It's all about their rights, but nobody has any responsibilities, right? And so 70% of the wealth and economic activity of this country is generated in districts uh, that voted for Biden, okay? Well, so okay. wealth, wealth, wealth is extracted. What does that mean? It, well, what it means is that the drivers of the economy are not the rural areas, and so, they readily accept money. Okay, where, Christy Nome is a perfect rural so, person. Wait, 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 where, are the, where are the resources? The resources are in the ninety percent of America that remains rural. <laughs> the, what the water are we talking about? The water, okay. the trees, the soil, the minerals, the you know, the air, the sunlight. I mean, all those resources are much more prominent. I mean, I mean, and are they protecting those resources? Do you consider what's going on with Iowa's water a protection of the it resources? De- it depends on the farmer, rancher. They, it, it, you, you can't, you can't lump them all into one group. Well, so you can all lump farmers them, are bad. You can lump them all into a group when you're the one drinking the water downstream from them, because no, cumulatively, yeah. there's way too much. Yeah, and, that's I, mean, running and I understand. Off their I'm not a fan of voluntary compliance when it comes to protecting the water and the air. There's got to be some. There, there, there's got to be some rules and regulations, but. I will say there are a lot of farmers, and I know a bunch, who care deeply about the land, who don't want to, who don't want to, you know, pass down a denuded, uh, you know, a farm to their their kids. Uh, they don't want to pass nutrients downstream. They they try to take care of it with buffer strips, with terracing, with other types of environmental, uh, you know, you know, uh, uh, you know stewardship uh, uh, initiatives that, that make a difference. But again, I don't understand how that answers the question of. As I started to say, Christy Nome is a perfect example of somebody running as a populist individualist from the rural areas who's taking who her, her ranch and, and properties take millions of dollars in subsidies from the federal government. Mm. Those are extracted from the blue states that they yell and scream about. You know, and so okay. my question to right. you is how do you appeal to this myth, which so, it is, this myth of Western individualism so you're and talking, rural yeah, individualism. Yeah, yeah, you're talking about wealth as money. I'm talking about it as resources. And again, I would say that all monetary wealth is based on resource wealth. Anyway. Well, <laughs> well then, but then you have put intellectual capital in that too, as well as the entrepreneurial you know, things that are brought to bear here. So the smarter people live in the cities? No. It's just the, the people who want more opportunities go to the cities. It's pretty clear. That's what's, that's what's depopulating the rural areas. Again, this could be another really good conversation, and I think we should have it soon. But I, I would say, if I can get the last word again. Mm-hmm. That's my show, damn it. Um, <laughs> the, uh, um, I forget where I was going with that. <laughs> people go where there's opportunities. And, and unfortunately, the, the, the rural areas don't. No longer supply those kind of opportunities. I know what's going. Rural America is going to look more and more appealing as urban America sees more and more problems. Yeah, to and the people who they don't want there, which is a bunch of people who lived, you know, made a lot of money on the West Coast, who want to go there to hide out from the next pandemic, or the onslaught of climate change, right? Or the zombie invasion. <laughs> All right. On the note of zombies invasion invading, um, yeah, we're gonna let it. We we let it drop there. Um, so Afghanistan, a tragedy, a long-running tragedy, and finally, um, the U.S. is out. Is this the biggest public uh, foreign, uh, foreign affairs fiasco ever? We'll talk about that, Charles and I, when we come back from a short break on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week 
with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of Architecture by Synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. Ned Fallon, back at you here, folks, on the Fallon Forum. Thanks again to those listening in our audience who support the forum. We sure appreciate that. And thanks to our local business partners as well, including Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Our cat loves her. Our chickens, yeah, they don't love her, but they know they're alive because of her, I think. Uh, I think they know these things at any rate. You can learn more about Story County Veterinary Clinic on their Facebook page, or just give Dr. Holding a call at 515-232-8766. All right, so Afghanistan, such a tragedy. Um... Yeah, I, I look at this, I, I, Charles, so in Politico, I don't, I don't know which sources you've been looking at, but this is an article from last week. Um, Politico, the story says the U.S. is ending its nearly 20-year combat mission in Afghanistan under a deal that President Trump signed with the Taliban in 2020. The U.S. invasion began in October of 2001 that broke up the Afghanistan-based al-Qaeda that had plotted the September 11 attacks. Uh, it overthrew with Afghan allies the Taliban government that had refused to surrender to Osama bin Laden. So just a little history that Trump was the, I guess you might say, he initiated the original uh, you know, con conversation with the Taliban that kind of built the foundation for this exodus. But um, I, you know, I, I guess there's so many questions. Why did this last so long? Why do, we, why, why do we even think it made sense to go into Afghanistan where, as, um, as has been said in the past, empires go to die? You know, see Great Britain and, and the Soviet Union for details. Well, because I mean, I, it, there are many things to say. I mean, first of all, um, as I said when I came, I don't ever want to see Liz Cheney talking about what happened in Afghanistan on TV. No, uh, she's not her dad. I mean, I know, I know Dick well, Cheney. Well, she was there. She was there, of course, to, to well. blame it all on the Biden administration. So these, <laughs> these are my questions. Okay, so we went in on with an objective of breaking up al-Qaeda. You mean back in 2001? In 2001. Right. Somehow, as it always does, just like Somalia, just like Iraq, just like Vietnam to some degree, although Vietnam was much more a Cold War confrontation, a surrogate Cold War confrontation, um, we decide we're going to build a nation, and we're going to build a nation uh, that looks like the United States in, in a culture which has no possible way of building a democracy or a republic either. It, it was a, it's a tribally ruled land. We paid off the tribal you know, masters, the leaders, to fight with us, right? 
It wasn't like they exactly adopted our American beliefs. They fought with us because we paid them and gave them weapons. Well, that's an American belief. Right. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So somehow it then became that we're going to build another democracy in Afghanistan. So we, of course, as we always do, since nobody ever you know, speaks anything but English, we only listen to the people who can speak English to us and tell us what we want to hear. <laughs> and then... Through multiple administrations, that's why I don't really want to hear about Trump, because this is, this is all, all the administrations. It morphed to a, a nation-building under Bush, W. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Obama. W, yeah, George W. Bush. I mean, Obama, how many times did Obama say, we'll get out of that war? Well, and we didn't. <laughs> so the point was, we were going to get out anyway at some point. Yeah. And actually, what's interesting is, in spite of the yelling and screaming, that if you, even if you watch CNN and MSNBC that's going on about it from both sides of the aisle now, most Americans... Didn't even realize we were still in there. <laughs> I mean, except well, a few at some point. That, that says very little about the war in Afghanistan and a lot about Americans' knowledge of foreign policy. But nevertheless, it was I mean, not, how many Americans could find Afghanistan on a map? I'd un- probably point un- down to understand like, like Alabama somewhere. But the, the problem, so corrupt government, they weren't feeding their own troops. There was, what were these people supposed to fight for? And on the other hand, why are Americans dying for this mirage of a nation? Mm-hmm. So I have no problem. Now, my no problem second, what? well, I have no problem with the idea that you withdraw. Yeah. You're not going to stop I, the Taliban. The Taliban, you know, they're going to wait I, I, I and wait say, and wait. It does, not, it does not happen often, but I want to say I think, I think President Trump signed an agreement that made some sense. It did set the framework for Biden to, to leave. Right. And also it, 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 he got the Taliban to agree not to um, attack any American uh, soldiers or personnel. And that's on ex- the way and out. that was, interestingly, it's exactly what the State Department spokesperson said yesterday, which was they were going to abide by the agreement because it kept the American troops from being attacked. Now, that's fine. But here again, the American military knew that we were going to leave Afghanistan within a year. They believed, based on their excellent intelligence work, that the, the Taliban, the uh, Afghan government would, would probably last about a year. So in other words, they knew the Taliban were going to take over again anyway. Yeah. But they knew that, that they, they thought up, they would have a year to do this. They were up by this. 10 months. Right. Yeah, they, they thought they would have a year to do this. So where were the plans, the trillions of dollars over the years that we have given to the military, where were their plans to do this in a way that didn't end up with this so complete to, carnage to, and chaos? To, to what extent was this 20-year uh, misadventure in Afghanistan just about money, about, about making sure the defense contractors and other any other moneyed interests uh, had uh, a war that they could get rich on. It's 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 about money. It's about hubris because we believe we we always think we well, can do something that other if, people if, couldn't. If it, if it was just about hubris, we could have got out in two thousand two. No, it's it, go it, in there, kill Obama. It's we'll too simple. Out. It's too simple to say it's just about money. I mean, it, no, it, I'm not. In, but I think I think it's largely it, about money. People people who are in a war fighting industry like the military is, they. They advance by being warriors. There was no other war. So there's a tendency for the military to continue to say I, I, for various I, reasons. I don't think that's a fair assessment of the military. I mean, and I've, I've been a critic of the military myself, but I, I, I don't think uh, at least most rank and file members of the military that I know don't really want to go off to war if they can help it. They'd rather they'd, they'd rather be able They're, to keep the peace from, from afar. I, I, wish that, I wish that were true, but... If you look at if you look at the various you know follies and fiascos that you've been talking about, there is a lot of things that go into this, and you don't 
you know, you, you don't make your bones in the military by sitting at a desk at the Pentagon. The other thing is we don't have a citizen's army anymore. Right. So just like Iraq, where it was, I mean, I, I'll never forget this disgusting interview that was done during the Iraq war with, with this gentleman in Lake Forest, Illinois, you know, mm. one of the most affluent counties in the country. And he's driving, he drives his Hummer up to the gas station, <laughs> you know, to fill it up with, I'm sure, I'm sure he had the I support the troops, you know, a bumper sticker on there. And somebody approached him. I was just, I can't remember why this was. A TV reporter approached him and asked him, does he um, feel badly about, you know, having a vehicle that gets such poor mileage in this, what's basically an oil war going on in Iraq? And he says, no. And then brilliantly, the reporter asked him, do you have any children in the military? And he says, no. And I wouldn't let them serve. Oh, wow. And so that's the other who is problem. This, who is this guy and where, what's his I, phone number? I don't know. Yeah, it was, it was unbelievable. A journalist actually did something to go beyond the simple pablum questions. But, but the point is, it's kind of like what I'm seeing on CNN today. You know, there's, the Chiron is talking about, well, Afghan women are now at risk because we left, we lost Afghanistan. Well... That's true, and it's horrible, and what's going to happen is horrendous. My question well, is, how many of the people on TV have children in the military? The, this goes right back to what we were talking about on the first segment, right? The people who serve in the military are predominantly people who come from fairly modest backgrounds. And a lot of people who want to make it in our society by getting a college education coming you know, from minorities. They're the ones who die mm -hmm. while everybody else gets to sit here and talk about things that sound really important to them sitting here in the United States, you know. And it's, it's time to, it's, we, you know, we said the same thing in, in, in Vietnam. And, and, you know, John Kerry, when he actually had a backbone at one time, you know, <laughs> said, you know, who, who wants to talk to the mother of the, of the, the last person who's going to die in Vietnam for a war that you knew? Yeah. was lost. So, I, I mean, at, at what point did the American people finally say, you know, we've kind of had enough of these endless wars, these wars that uh, that don't end well uh, in terms of accomplishing the alleged policy goals. At what point are, are Americans going to get fed up with that? I, I mean, it's a, it, it's, and I understand the challenge. The challenge is how do you show your support for the individual that makes the decision oftentimes for economic reasons or reasons related to college, makes that decision to join the Army, that gets sent overseas, deployed. How do you still show your support for that individual while criticizing the war itself? And I, I personally, I think Tulsi Gabbard has done a very good job of that, and there's still somebody who's still an active-duty person. But, I mean, it's, more and more people, I think, are, are, are having that conversation. But there's still this whitewash um, and you know, and Americans are, are kind of, kind of compelled through the not the 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 main the, the dominant narrative to go out there and support the troops, and that means you can't criticize the war, even though more and more soldiers are criticizing the wars. Well, no, I I don't know how you get over that. I mean, I had a confrontation when I was protesting at one of uh, W's, you know, July Fourth speeches in Morgantown, West Virginia, you know. And I, I, I'm 23 years in the Air Force, you know, mm -hmm. and I got criticized by these two young guys saying, you know, you're not a patriot. You're not supporting the war. You're not supporting the president. I said, number one, I've earned the right to be out here because I spent 20 plus years in the military. And you two are in your 20s. And if you're not in the military, you don't get to cheerlead somebody else's war. So get out of my yeah, face. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we need to stop cheerleading well, war. Yeah. And, I, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens next. I, I think... I, 
I have some hope that the Taliban will moderate and not be as extreme and and uh, totally repressive as they were. I, I maybe I'm just being optimistic, uh, unrealistically, but uh, I'd like to think that uh, that won't last. Uh, that I mean, what they what some of the things they 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 did and professed are extremely unjust, and I believe that injustice never lasts too long. So hopefully they're moderating. And my, partly the, part of the reason they might, model, they might moderate is to be more acceptable to the world community. They, they're going to need uh, to have that um, support from other nations uh, if they want to be a legitimate government. If, if that was the solution, why wouldn't they have done that 18 years ago? Yeah, maybe they weren't mature enough. I don't know. I, I, I'm I think, not sure. I think I, that's really wishful thinking. Yeah. Well, at any rate, we'll see what happens there. We'll see what happens in terms of Biden's ongoing response. Uh, we'll see where the next... Uh, war uh, zone becomes we'll see I mean I, and I don't I think I think our country is committed to fighting wars and again you think it's for hubris I think it's for economics maybe we're both right no I, I don't <laughs> think you can yeah this is not one factor I agree with you hey I gotta take a break here Charles thanks for uh, co-hosting with me today when we come back uh, we're gonna be talking about the history of the Iowa State Fair some things you didn't know about Iowa's uh, uh, biggest event of the year <laughs> because Biggest, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead say it. Go ahead, say it. <laughs> Biggest super spreader event of the year. Okay, right. right. Hey, back in a minute, folks. Hey, Fallon with you on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Our state fair is a great state fair. Don't miss it, don't even delay. It's dollars to donuts that our state fair is the best state fair in our state. Hey, well, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. And thanks to our local business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. You can order groceries online also, and Gateway offers catering and floral services as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. All right, welcome back to the program. And uh, Kathy Burns was going to join me. She had to step out. I'm going to go this solo because I can do this. The Iowa State Fair. Okay, so everybody knows about the Iowa State Fair, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, apparently it first got, and you know about the, the musical, maybe even the movie, State Fair. That's about the Iowa State Fair. And the original novel called State Fair back in 1932, a book by Phil Stong. Uh, he was a New York journalist, but he grew up in Iowa. <laughs> and uh, he had also, in, uh, he'd written livestock reports for the Des Moines Register, which was an actual paper back then. 
<laughs> so the plot of the 1932 novel, it revolves around an Iowa family, a farm family from rural Iowa. They, they come to the big evil city of Des Moines, and uh, they go to the state fair. And the book um, is described by one commentator as, quote, a surprisingly dark coming-of-age story that centered around the worldly temptations of the Iowa State Fair on a local farming family, capturing tensions between rural Des Moines and, sorry, urban Des Moines and rural Iowa. End quote. Nothing new there, right? <laughs> the rural-urban divide. Uh, and as folks who out in the rural areas want, when they want to disparage Des Moines, they call us Des Moines, which is cute. Uh, and, you know, and there are plenty of folks in the big city of Des Moines that like to disparage rural Iowa. I am not one of them. I have a lot of respect, admiration, and love for rural Iowa and rural America. That's another conversation. So, okay, so besides the obvious plot lines of the, uh, in the 1932 novel, the father enters his prize Hampshire boar. And the mother enters her pickles. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a competition for everything at the state fair. And I, I don't know whether, I can't remember whether they win or lose. But the main plot uh, hones in on the teenage son and daughter. Now, they go to the fair with the family, with the Hampshire boar. They, they, maybe they're sleeping in the same stall with the boar. Because I'm not making this up. A lot of times those farm families come in, they, they can't afford a hotel. They end up sleeping, <laughs> sleeping with their critters. It's really cute. Um, so the main plot, though, is that, um, you know, back in their hometown, they have, a, they have a boy and a girl, respectively, that they're in love with. But at the fair, again, in the evil city of Des Moines, they, they, um, they, they meet somebody and they fall in love and, you got it, they lose their virginity. I guess if you want to lose your virginity, you come to Des Moines. So they ultimately break up with their new sinful lovers and <laughs> return back to the uh, family farm and their original, uh, original uh, lovers. So uh, this apparently was a pretty a successful book. It was originally projected to sell 10,000 copies. It became a bestseller and Stong became a popular author. So of course, you probably are more aware of the films, uh, the first one in 1933, the next one in 1945. That was the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, which, interestingly, excludes any sexual encounters between the two teenagers. That's, that wouldn't happen today. They would hype that up, right? So the um, 1945 version of the film was also made into a musical that premiered in 1969 and ran for 118 performances. Pretty good. So some... Uh, that's the history, folks. The Iowa State Fair. America's State Fair. This year, it's Iowa, the Iowa COVID spreader, super spreader fair. I, there are people who are really uh, upset that it's happening. I stay out of this. I don't want to see it politicized. You know, maybe I'll go to the fair. Maybe I won't. If you want to go, just use common sense. Ideally, you're vaccinated. But, um, you know, it is a cool event. There's lots of things happening. Um, so many competitions. I, I cannot even tell you. I mean, and some of them are ridiculous competitions. Um, uh, running to an outhouse. I, you know, uh, what else? Um, throwing a dead chicken. Well, it's not actually a dead chicken. It's a rubber chicken. Throwing a rubber chicken. A few other absolutely. Oh, um, longest beards. Uh, what else? Yodeling, I think. There are so many crazy things that happen. I settle for the more um, normal type of uh, competitions. For example, uh, the accordion. So I... <laughs> I know I said normal and according in the same sentence, and you're laughing, and you should. So uh, I think uh, I think I've been in about ten state fair accordion competitions, and I've I've won three times. 
Uh, I finished. Uh, I finished the last couple of times. I finished second or third to this um, awesome woman accordionist from Eastern Iowa. Uh, yeah, she's just uh, she's dynamite. Anyway, can't hold a candle to her. I entered the piano competition once. I made the mistake of playing a really excellent classical piece of music. That didn't go over that well. I got third though, and I also entered the horseshoe competition. Now, for some reason. The instrumental competitions don't cost any money. You enter the horseshoe competition, you got to pay, I think it was five bucks at the time. But here's the kicker. If you finish well, if you finish first, you win something or other. If you finish last, you get your five bucks back. So I was doing okay, and I realized, damn, I, I can't, I can't keep, keep doing okay. I'm not going to get my five bucks back. And then again, true to form, my, 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 my true um, um, ability at horseshoes, came shining through, and I started blowing shot after shot. Not intentionally, by the way, and I finished last. But actually, my favorite, my, okay, my second favorite thing at the fair, the Avenue of the Breeds. This is where they have all sorts of creatures within every category of farm critter, cow, horse, chicken, duck, pig, llama, um, ostrich. All these different breeds are focused, uh, are, are featured there, and it's really cool. So if you do come to the fair, I recommend checking out the Avenue of the Breeds. But my real favorite thing to do at the fair is, it only happens every four years, it is the, the parade of presidential candidates. And uh, this time around, in uh, 2019, uh, it was all focused on Democrats, of course. Um, and it was, uh, it was quite, I mean, me and other folks with Bold Iowa, we, uh, we met with so many candidates. And when I say met, we got to talk with a bunch of them. Uh, I got to talk to Biden there, we talked Tulsi Gabbard, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, even said hello to Bernie Sanders. Uh, and again, we were doing that not just for the fun of it. We were trying to nail them down on the climate crisis. And that happens every four years. And, and, la and before that, back in 2015, it was a huge parade of Republican candidates, which is not as productive when it comes to talking about climate change, but as interesting. And I tell you, um, Sherry Herdina, my co-worker and the co-producer of this program, is, um, is, is amazing at bird dogging because uh, she doesn't want to talk to the candidates, but she never misses a beat when it comes to trying to, uh, trying to capture video of the interaction between the candidate and the bird dogger, often me uh, when I was going with Sherry. Uh, so anyway, it's a, it's a great event. Uh, I, I imagine in uh, 2023, I, who's, who knows what happens? Maybe Joe Biden runs for re-election. There will at any rate... Um, well, if Trump runs again, there may be no fun at the state fair. But I'm hoping, I'm hoping for a lively and uh, and uh, and and um, ex extensive uh, uh, entrance of candidates. It is a great opportunity to get people to talk about climate or any issue you really care deeply about. Anyway, thanks to uh, my co-host today, Charles Goldman. Uh, thanks to the rest of our production team, Kathy Burns, Sherry Herdina, and Forrest Detterman. Thanks also to our local small business sponsors, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, Groovy Goods, and psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, that would be Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Remember folks, your support for this program matters a heck of a lot, so sign up for my weekly email on the Fallon Forum website. That's FallonForum.com. Thanks again, folks, and we'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.